Hello and welcome to day 38 of our 75-day OT with DA Reading Challenge. My name is Pastor David Ashrick. I'm the DA part of OT with DA. And the OT, as you might have surmised, is the Old Testament. Over here, I'm talking to Instagram Live. Welcome to everybody. Man, you guys sign on so quick. It's like I literally just press go live and I blink and there's like 200 people. Bam, just like that. And so welcome to everybody over here on Instagram Live. Welcome to YouTube. So glad you're here. I don't know what the weather is like where you're at, but I can tell you where I'm at here in central Colorado. It is brutally cold, like bitterly, insanely cold. And uh, I, I actually only went out of the house one time today, and it was to drive over here to my friend's house, Larry and Cheryl's, and I had to scrape the the ice off the windows of the car, and I felt like I would never feel my fingers again. So I don't know what the temperature is right now outside, but I know what it's not. And it's not warm. So I hope wherever you are, it's at least a little warmer than where I am. And I imagine, because we have viewers from Scandinavia and Alaska, there are probably some of you who are saying, David, come on, don't be a lightweight. It's not that cold where you are. You might be like in Fairbanks, Alaska or something. So anyway, I hope you're warmer than I am here. I'm quite warm in this room now, but what a cold day. Welcome everybody. Day 38 of OT with DA. And you know what that means. In a 75 day challenge, if we're on day 38, that means that we are now officially in the second half of OT with DA. And I know that you are having the same experience that I'm having. You're like, what? Really? Is that possible? Where did all the time go? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. It feels like just a couple weeks ago, we were setting up cameras and lights and making announcements. And then bam, we're in chapter 37, the struck rock. And this is a great chapter. I mean, like a really, really great chapter. Just as I was leaving to come over here tonight, uh, Violetta, my wife, she said to me, ooh, this chapter's heavy because she's tracking along. She was a few chapters ahead, but then I think now we've kind of caught up to her. And uh, she said, this chapter's heavy. And I agree, it's a heavy chapter. So a, a few quick announcements. Um, first of all, I've already complained about the cold, so I won't do that again. That's number one. Number two, just a reminder, and I know that I sometimes forget to say this, but if you are watching on YouTube, it's really helpful to me and to the channel if you hit like and subscribe. Okay, I'm, I'm really bad about saying that kind of thing, but please like the channel, please subscribe to the channel, and uh, that would be amazing. Also, if you are using social media, whether Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, please use the OT with DA hashtag. It's really great to just listen to some of the messages or some of the read some of the messages and look at the artwork and just sort of keep up with the community. And I, I received actually a really, really encouraging text today. And uh, you know who sent it. Thank you for sending that. And I just feel so blessed and so honored to be a part of this thing that God is doing in the lives of many people. I've had so many people reach out to me, and I don't say this in a self-congratulatory way. I say it in a give God all the glory and praise way. But I've had people reach out and say, David, you have no idea how much these challenges help, right? Just to keep me on track and to give me something to look forward to and and life is really that way, isn't it? It's made up of these sort of rhythms and these habits 
that we either make, you know, positively or we just kind of fall into the aimlessness of modern life. And so my answer to the people that have said that and this person in particular that texted me is, hey, listen, it's a blessing for me too. Giant blessing. It is a lot of work. In fact, just a word on that. I came over early this morning, spent some time with Jim getting the interview with Dr. Peckham all put together and rendered and edited, and it's done. It took a long time uh, for the rendering, but I just came in tonight, looked at the computer, and it's officially there. It's on the, the desktop. So I haven't yet uploaded it, but I will. Um, and it'll take a few hours for it to upload, but I know I said yesterday by this time today it would be up, but it just took longer than I thought it would. But it is a virtual guarantee. It's an all, a near certainty that by this time tomorrow, in fact, even earlier, probably by the time I wake up tomorrow morning, it will already be uploaded in addition to this video as well. So if you're interested in watching that, in fact, you are interested. Let me just tell you that. If you're turning, tuning into OT with DA, you are going to want to watch that conversation with John. And I know it's a little intimidating. It's two and a half hours long. So break it up. Break it up into small little bits. Watch half of it then watch the second half or break it up into three parts, whatever. In fact, I'm going to say that you're probably going to want to watch it back to back, like more than once. Uh, as I mentioned yesterday, I was a part of that conversation and I can't wait to rewatch it. And as I already mentioned, you're going to want to have a pen and a notepad and go back and if you haven't already, watch all of the supplemental sessions with Jennifer, with Sylvia, with Sean, with Anthony, and then now with John. So anyway, I thought it would be up. It's not yet up. I had a busy day today. It was one of those days where you kind of know what you're going to do. You've got your day kind of carved out in front of you, and then a meeting comes up, and then you get a phone call, and then somebody asks you if you can do something, and uh, my day kind of got away from me a little bit. And so it has been a productive day, but not productive exactly in the ways that I thought it would be, and I think we all kind of know what those days are like, right? That's the, that's the curse of the modern life, right? You might get a lot done, but it wasn't exactly what you planned because now everybody has access to you. And that's how it feels, at least to me. So I love it. But at the same time, it sometimes increases my workload. And I just, I wish I could keep up with all of the, uh, with all the people that reach out to me. It's, it's one of the great, um, it's one of the great sadnesses of my ministry, honestly, over the years that, that I just have so many people reach out to me with encouraging words or questions or, you know, whatever it might be. And it's just really, really, really hard to keep up with all of it. So thank you for your patience. If you're, you know, hearing back from me, and if you're not hearing back from me, thank you for your forgiveness. How's that? Okay, so chapter 37, The Struck Rock, we are now officially in the second half of OT with DA. I can hardly believe it. In the types and symbols, we're on page 500. Let, right, the first page of this chapter, page 500, 411 of the original. And that means that there is more on the side that we have read than the side that we haven't read. I think there's like about 930, 940 pages here. Uh, looks like that's an appendix. So it looks like the last page is 930. So we are well and truly over halfway in the book, and we are just over halfway in the challenge. And uh, this is a great chapter, man. I'm, I'm pumped about this chapter, The Struck Rock, and we're going to be in Numbers chapter 20. I'm going to pray. We're going to get into this. One more quick announcement. I had a, a great text exchange today with Mark from Types and Symbols, and he gave me a really, really good idea 
for our next challenge. Because remember yesterday I was sort of talking about the doldrums that we will certainly experience when we do prophets and kings. I mentioned that yesterday. And then Mark reached out today and said, hey, I got a great idea. Or he didn't say it was a great idea. He said, I've got an idea. And it was a great idea. And a lot of his ideas, frankly, are great ideas. I mean, the conflict beautiful itself was his idea. And it's proven to be a great idea. So anyway, um, I'll probably be telling you more about that later this week or early next week. But we've got a plan. A plan. Um, all right, let's do this. We are in Numbers 20, chapter 37. I'm going to start with prayer, and we're off to the races. Father in heaven, thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for the OT with DA community. Thank you for Jesus, the rock, the fountain of, of everlasting life, the waters that flow as salvation to a lost and fallen and otherwise hopeless race. Father, thank you for this chapter, for all of the encouragement that it provides, for the rebuke, the, the, the series of rebukes that it provides. And uh, Lord, I just pray that tonight our presentation will be characterized by both clarity and biblical charity. Uh, be with us now. Open our hearts as we open this book is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen and amen. By the way, if you're following along on Instagram, you would have seen that the word that I selected yesterday because I had my own word and I was kind of going back and forth and I thought maybe dashed because I thought that was a great word when uh, there's that great sentence there that talks about how sin dashed the cup of blessing from their lips. But as I went back and looked at Isaiah 63, verse 9, which she quotes in yesterday's chapter, and then I reread Lamentations 3, 20, uh, 32 and 33, I settled on affliction, afflicted. So there's my word for yesterday, afflicted. And if you're following along on Instagram, you would have already noted that. Um, so with that in mind, turning the page here, also got a page full of notes. By the way, <laughs> this is kind of cute. This is kind of cute, in my opinion. Some dear brother on Twitter, I didn't catch his name, but thank you for reaching out. He, he actually said, hey, um, could you get somebody else to write your notes in your journal? Because it's actually kind of hard to read your handwriting. Which, first of all, you know, props to you for being bold, right? Like just coming right out and saying, hey, uh, could you get somebody else to write your notes? I responded and said, I don't know if anybody else would be... <laughs> hey, would you write my devotional journal notes for me? I mean, that's kind of weird, right? Like, this is my private time with Jesus, in the Word, in Patriarchs and Prophets, and what am I going to do? Have, like, a scribe? <laughs> write this down. Anyway, apologies if you can't read my chicken scratch. I only put my notes up as a public service. Um, so if you can read it, you're blessed. And if not, you can laugh at me, I guess. I was studying... Uh, pre-med before I became a pastor, so I suppose I'm qualified. I actually find my writing pretty easy to read, but uh, apparently this person thought um, not so much. So apologies if you can't read my writing. I don't know what to tell you. That's that's not going to be fixed. Not when you're my age. Okay, here we go. Um, I think I'll just start by kind of, I got a lot I want to say here, and I'm going to wade in as I sometimes do and just read the first paragraph. From the struck rock in Horeb first flowed the living stream that refreshed Israel in the desert, a reference back to Sinai. During all their wanderings, wherever the need existed, they were supplied with water by a miracle of God's mercy. The water did not, however, continue to flow, that's key, from Horeb. Wherever in their journeys they wanted water, 
There from the clefts of the rock, it gushed out beside their encampment. Okay. So one of the things that I wrote here, just on this first paragraph, is the idea that that sometimes God's blessings are not continual, but they're contextual. And what I mean by that is the, the water flowed when they needed it to flow, but if they found themselves in a situation where there were natural sources of water, such as we're going to see in today's chapter, there was no need for the water to flow. In other words, God wasn't performing miracles just for the sake of you know, satisfying their curiosity or whatever. You know, he's not pulling rabbits out of hats. His miracles rise to the occasion of our need. And I think this is a good thing because if God's blessings, if all of God's blessings were continual rather than contextual, we wouldn't have the deep appreciation for them when they do show up. And, and again, to be clear, a lot of God's blessings are in fact continual, like, like life and breath and beauty. Yes, okay, those things are always happening, but there are other things in our life, like warm weather, for example, that when they show up, we're like, whoa, this is great. I'm so glad this is here. And so this is one of the things that just sort of jumped out at me in that first paragraph is that thank God, not only for his continual blessings, which there are many of those, a catalog of those, but thank God for those blessings that are intermittent or episodic so that when they show up, we can say, yes, yeah. And, and for example, the Sabbath, right? If the Sabbath were every day, well, first of all, you wouldn't be able to get any labor done. And if the Sabbath was just, you know, spontaneously, you know, no rhyme, no rhythm, it just showed up randomly, well, that wouldn't really work either. But the Sabbath is contextual, right? It shows up every seven days. It's a giant blessing. And in a way, the fact that it's only one day in seven makes it all the better, right? It's a little bit like your birthday. If your birthday was every day, it would cease to have the meaning and the significance that it does have because it's the anniversary of your birth, the reminder. It's like, oh yeah, I'm you know, 27, I'm 39, I'm whatever. And so I like this idea that some of God's blessings are continual, they're uninterrupted, they're always available, they are, we might say, ubiquitous. And then other blessings from God are there when we need them, right? When we need them, when we call for them, when we ask for them, which is another major motif, one of the big motifs that I'm going to tease out of this lesson, they are there. And I really like that. Okay, second thing here is that Ellen White's going to make the point, and this is not Ellen White's point, this is actually Moses' point, and it's the New Testament's point. It's the Bible's point, and that is that Christ was the rock, right? The rock that follows them, the rock that symbolizes them, or the, the, the rock that, that followed them symbolized, rather, Jesus. And she makes that point over and over again. In fact, what we really have in this chapter is the twin metaphors, the twin illustrations of the rock and the flowing water, both of which uh, symbolize or typify Jesus. And at the end of the lesson, I'll share with you my very favorite rock text in all of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. There's a lot of great ones. She quotes many of them here. Um, in fact, in that second paragraph, she quotes one of my one of my favorites, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. It says, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Right? So you could even say that the rock was not just a symbol of Christ. Paul says the rock was Christ. In some significant sense, Christ was in that rock. Now, he's not constrained by the rock, right? Like physically, he's not, he's not bound by that rock any more than God was bound by the Shekinah glory that was atop the mercy seat of the ark. But, but he inhabited that rock in some significant sense 
such that it was not merely a symbol or merely a figure. It was the very presence of Christ, at least when the water was flowing out of it. And so she says in that same paragraph there, Christ, the true rock, was with them in all of their wanderings. She then quotes Isaiah 48, 21 and Psalm 105, 41. Let's read that. They did not thirst. When he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. There's both of the metaphors, the waters and the rock. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. Well, that's heavy with, with Christological significance, right? Split the rock and the waters gushed out. They ran in the dry places like a river. And then the very next sentence of the next paragraph, the struck rock was a figure of Christ. The struck rock was a figure of Christ. Beautiful. In fact, let's just read that paragraph. And through this symbol, the most precious spiritual truths are taught. As the life-giving waters flowed from the smitten rock, so from Christ, smitten by God, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, quoting from Isaiah 53, several passages there, the stream of, I underline this, and I hope you did too, the stream of salvation flows not just for Israel, not just for God's covenant people, flows what? For a lost race, for everybody, right? It is non-discriminatory. It is impartial. In fact, the impartiality of God is another major theme in this chapter. The stream of salvation flows for a lost race. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. As the rock had been once struck, so Christ was to be offered once to bear the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Our Savior was not to be sacrificed a second time. Ooh, a lot of heavy symbolism here, a lot of significance here in the once versus the twice, in the one versus the two. Our Savior was not to be sacrificed a second time, and it is, and you got to underline this, only necessary, underline it, only necessary for those who seek the blessings of his grace to ask. And it lines up really nicely in the types and symbols here. I don't know how it is in the original pagination, but, but only necessary and to ask are right above one another. And so you can put like a box around them so that you get that phrase in your mind, right? It is only necessary to ask, right? Because everything else is just sort of setting up what she's saying. It is only necessary for those who seek the blessings of his grace. That's a series of prepositional phrases right? But then the, the verb is to ask, right? So it is only necessary to ask. She's going to make that point again. It is only necessary to ask in the name of Jesus, pouring forth the heart's desire in penitential prayer. Such prayer will bring before the Lord of hosts the wounds of Jesus, and then will flow forth afresh the life-giving blood symbolized by the flowing of the living water for Israel. Wow, wow, so much going on in that paragraph, right? You've got the once struck versus the twice. You've got the stream of salvation flowing out to the lost for a lost race. You've got the struck rock was a figure of Christ. You've got the life-giving blood. You've got the it's only necessary to ask. I mean, that, that chapter is just, or excuse me, that paragraph is pregnant, absolutely overflowing with good news, with significant, in fact, let me just show you the other instance. So you've got the only necessary to ask, and rather than putting it off, I'll just take you to the good news right now. It's on page 506 of the Types and Symbols, 418 of the original pagination. Paragraph begins by his rash act. So find that paragraph because you'll want to make a note. What I do 
By the way, I think in every YouTube video, I, I put up the Vimeo video that Types and Symbols recorded for how I mark my books. And so if you haven't already watched that video, it's like a 20 or 30 minute video where I go through how it is that I mark. And it's not like a overly formulaic, but I do give you some pretty good hints and insights as to what works really well for me. But in this case, for example, I put a little asterisk, not to be confused with an asterisk, mind you. I put a little asterisk by the first one back on page 501. It is only necessary to ask. And then within the chapter, if I come across something else like that, I'll put another asterisk that alerts me. It's just quick and easy to find. And this one's on page 506. 506, 418 of the original. Find the paragraph that says, by his rash act. And let's just read uh, the uh, third sentence there. The second time it was needful only to speak to the rock as we have only to ask. Underline it. Only to ask for blessings in the name of Jesus. Okay, so clearly this is a point she's making. It's a great point. And uh, the theological significance here is that the rock had already been struck, right, at Horeb, and now there's no need to strike the rock a second and third times, right? Because Moses goes bam, bam, but the rock had already been struck years before. And so the point here is that Jesus has been struck. He suffered, she quotes Hebrews 9, 28, he was offered once to bear the sins for many. He doesn't die over and over again. He doesn't die repeatedly. He died one time. It was an, an, it was an event of history. And so what do we do now? We ask. We ask in his name. Only ask. Only ask. And so, bam, one of the major um, things that jumped out at me in this chapter, right? Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. Jesus is ascended. He is interceding even now on our behalf. What needs to happen? Does he need to be sacrificed again? No. Does he need to go to the cross again? No. What needs to happen? We need to ask. The life-giving, what she calls the life-giving blood, symbolized by the flowing of the living water for Israel, we need to ask, Father, I need, and just a word on that. That sounds weird, super kind of horrific almost, and weird to non-religious people, right? The blood of Jesus. One of my favorite gospel songs is there's power in the blood, right? Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil of victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. And, and to non-religious people, that sounds like, whoa, we're talking about blood a lot here. Well, what's going on? Well, the blood symbolizes two things, right? First of all, blood that's in the body, coursing through the veins, being pumped by the heart, symbolizes the life. And the Bible makes this point expressly. It literally says on several occasions in both Genesis and later Leviticus, the life is in the blood. So, so blood symbolizes life. Now, blood spilt symbolizes what? This is an easy one, death, right? And just as in the sanctuary when the lamb had its uh, throat slit and the blood went out, this was known to be uh, a, a, the death of the animal. And that spilt blood symbolized death, and we've already talked about the sanctuary, how the blood was used effectively as a, as a container to bring the iniquity, to bring the defilement and sin into the sanctuary, and then eventually on the Day of Atonement, it would go back out. Okay, but I digress. Don't miss the point here that when we talk about there's power in the blood, here's what we're saying, okay? Just in case that language, maybe you're new to Christianity, or you've always kind of wondered, hey, that sounds kind of like a horror movie or something, covered in the blood, power in the blood, the life-giving blood. Okay, here's what it means. 
The blood of Jesus, number one, is his sinless life, his perfect life, and number two, his sacrificial death on our behalf. He lived the life that we have not lived, that none of us have lived, and he died the death that we all deserve. That's what we mean when we talk about there's power in the blood. We're, we're saying, we're celebrating the sinless life and the substitutionary death of Jesus. Bam. That's what's meant by the life-giving blood. Okay, then in the next uh, paragraph, page 501, I'm still there, she goes into how this symbol of the water flowing from the rock began to be celebrated after they inhabited the Canaan land, and then she fast-forwards all the way up to the New Testament, and she starts quoting from John chapter 7, right, where Jesus there, and this is one of the great scenes in the whole of the Gospel of John, in the whole of all the Gospels, John chapter 7 is, is one of the great scenes, right, where Jesus' brothers say to him, hey, you should go up to the feast, and he says, oh, my time has not yet come, and everybody's sort of waiting for Jesus to show up. They think he's going to make this big splash, but he doesn't show up until the final day of the feast. And when he does, he makes this incredible speech that takes place right in the middle of the ceremony that she describes here. And if you haven't read that chapter recently, it was one of my favorite chapters in The Desire of Ages. Let me just quickly find it here. I think it's called At the Feast of Tabernacles, but let me just be sure. Yeah, chapter 49, At the Feast of Tabernacles. Yeah, go remind yourself of that one because it is gold. Gold, gold. It would be a great thing to read um, sometime today or tomorrow or in the next couple days as a companion to this chapter, right? At the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, I actually wanted to, but my Bible was, or my Bible, my Desire of Ages was here. And so uh, I didn't have it. I could have read it digitally, but nah. So anyway, go back and remind yourself of that. So Jesus, Jesus goes up, you know, at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he says, I mean, just to everyone's astonishment, uh, I'm, I'm quoting here now, on the last great day of the feast, this is top of page 502, 413 of the original, on the last day of that great feast, his voice was heard in tones that rang through the temple courts, quote, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This, said John, he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. So, so much theological significance here, so much spiritual significance that she makes this quick transfer from Moses and Israel that are on the borders of Canaan, and then she flashes forward into when they occupy the Canaan land, and then further forward still into John chapter 7. And it's all beautiful. In fact, there's this great section here I want to read just down from that. In fact, I'm going to just start reading right there. The refreshing water welling up in a parched and barren land, causing the desert place to blossom. Wow. Just a word on that. Just a quick word. Prior to coming back to the United States of America, Violetta and I took like a four, almost five-month trip around Australia. It was perfect timing because we were no longer pastoring at the Kingscliff Church. COVID was in full swing here in America, and there was really nothing we could do. There was really no international travel. So we just decided, we had already decided to take two or three months off, but it just turned out that we were able to take like four and a half months off and just drive around the outback of Australia. Now, I don't know how much you know about the geography of, Aus of Australia, but it is one of the flattest, hottest, driest places in the world, right? But we happened to go to several places on our trip 
where it had recently rained and the most incredible thing happens if you, you can have land that is not received a drop of rain in years, years and years, and then when the rains come, I mean, it's just, we were driving, in fact, one of the great sort of scenes that you get in Outback Australia is you have the blue sky, just this canopy of blue, because it's extremely flat. It's like pool table flat. So this, this whole canopy of blue occupying exactly half of what you're seeing in front of you, and then this, this, um, this uh, foundation of red dirt, right? And so this is one of the great scenes in Outback Australia, blue above and red below, and it's awesome, and it's amazing. And we saw that over and over and over again as we traversed hither and yon all over Queensland and New South Wales and South Australia. We could get to everywhere except for Tasmania and WA, Western Australia. But on several of the, the, the areas that we visited, because we were looking for birds, as you might have predicted, it had rained, like heavily rained, like more than it had rained in a decade in a couple of these places. And we got to see this. And we were there about mm, three weeks to a month after these heavy rains. And this is what we saw. The beautiful canopy of blue, the red, the brick red of the Australian outback dirt, and then green and, and white and yellow flowers. And it was amazing. It was amazing. And we would talk to some of the locals and we'd say, man, it's so green. It's so beautiful. They'd say, it hasn't been this way for a decade. We haven't seen it like this. Like locals, we would see, and there's not a lot of people out there. They'd say, we haven't seen anything. It hasn't been like this for 10 years. Okay, so, so this language here is so great. The refreshing water welling up in a parched and barren land, causing the desert place to blossom. I've seen this. And maybe you have too, like in Death Valley or someplace where you've been, it's amazing. I mean, it just comes to life, and it comes to life quick because the water's not going to last long. And uh, of course, the birds are out in force, and the insects are out in force, and the flowers are out. It's, it's amazing. It's biblical. It's beautiful. Flowing out to give life to the perishing is an emblem of the divine grace, which Christ alone, underline it, underline that, Christ alone, Christ alone, right? This is one of the fides of the Reformation, right? Sola fide, only by faith. Sola uh, Deo Gloria, only to the glory of God. Sola gratia, only by grace. Sola Cristo, only Christ, Christ alone. So underline. And then, of course, sola scriptura is the one that launches all of the subsequent solas. So Christ alone, underline it. Christ alone can bestow, and which is as the living water, purifying, refreshing, and invigorating the soul. Yes. She continues, he in whom Christ is abiding has within him a never-failing fountain of grace and strength. That sounds like Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, John chapter 4. She says, hey, uh, how are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. He says, well, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. And she's like, how are you going to get water? You don't even have a cup. You don't have anything to draw with. And he says that the water that I will give you will be in you, a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. He says, you will never thirst again. Well, she didn't like the idea of going continually to the well. And so she says, hey, give me this water that will permanently slake my thirst, that will permanently satiate my thirst, and I'll never have to come back to this place again. Right? And so such great language here. Sounds like the John 4 language. He in whom Christ is abiding has within him a never-failing fountain of grace and strength, Jesus cheers the life and brightens the path of all who truly seek him. His love, 
received into the heart, will spring up. Beautiful. Spring up in good works to eternal life. And not only does it bless the soul in which it springs, but the living stream will flow out in words and deeds of righteousness to refresh the thirsting around him or her. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see Marco says this chapter was refreshing. Exactly. I'm on page 502. That's the paragraph that begins, the Savior made use of the symbolic service, 413 of the original. That whole section is just absolutely amazing. She closes that paragraph by saying, he is the rock, he is the living water. So those are the two emblems, right? Just like yesterday's chapter, we had the two Psalms, the Levitical Psalm of Nehemiah 9, and then Psalm 78. And the whole chapter was kind of built around these two Psalms. Here, the whole chapter is built around these two symbols, these two emblems, the rock and the water, the rock and the water. And what's really cool is that these emblems, they're, they're not separate emblems, they overlap because the water flowed out of the rock. Very cool. Uh, next paragraph there, she then goes into uh, several, actually three or four paragraphs where she just starts quoting all of these great rock verses, right? Um, the rock of my strength, the rock that is higher than I, the rock of habitation, the rock of my heart, the rock of my refuge. And then she starts quoting from several of the, the water passages. The wellspring of wisdom is like a flowing brook, the fountain of living waters, the fountain open for sin and uncleanness. So she just, she just brings some of the biblical data to bear on these ideas. And as I mentioned at the very end, I'll share with you my favorite rock text. Uh, and I'd be surprised if anybody knows it, okay? It's great. It's, I honestly don't even know what it means. <laughs> I mean, I kind of know what it means, but it's, it's an obscure verse. And uh, I originally became exposed to this verse, or at least uh, the first time I really thought on this verse was when I read a, a manuscript of a sermon from the great American evangelist Dwight Moody like 15 years ago. And he preached a sermon on this verse. And when I read the verse, I was like, I have no idea what that verse means, and it was an incredible sermon, right? I could only read it, but oh, man, would to God that I could have heard him preach that sermon. Okay, so then she goes through that section, she um, that whole section where she's bringing all of these different verses from Isaiah, Zechariah, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Psalms to bear on the idea, the twin figures of rock and water. Um, she then says that... that um, I'm jumping down to the paragraph, page 503, that begins just before the Hebrew host. This is 413 of the original. Just before the Hebrew host reached Kadesh, the living stream ceased that for so many years had gushed out beside their encampment. It was the Lord's purpose again to test his people. He would prove whether they would trust his providence or imitate the unbelief of their fathers. Now, this is quite interesting. So the faucet has been largely on, remember, not continually on, if there was a natural source of water. There was no need for there to be a miraculous source. This is the difference between continual and contextual blessings. And uh, so here, just as they're approaching, she says they could actually, next paragraph, they could see the hills of Canaan in their sight. And I put in my margin here, no more circles, right? They're not just wandering in circles over and over again around Mount Seir and wandering aimlessly around the desert. Now they're walking in a straight line toward the promised land. They begin to see the hills of Canaan, and uh, this is an opportunity for them to say, oh, we're coming up on natural water sources. We're getting ready to go into the land that flows with milk and honey. We're not going to be in the dry, 
howling desert wilderness anymore. And she says, uh, I'm on page 504 now, uh, right down toward the end of that long paragraph, uh, 414 of the original. Had they not, let me back up a little bit. The cessation of the miraculous flow of water should therefore have been a cause of rejoicing. Ah, this is interesting. A token that the wilderness wandering was ended. Had they not been blinded by their unbelief, they would have understood this. But that which should have been an evidence of the fulfillment of God's promise was made to be an occasion of doubt and murmuring. The people seemed to have given up all hope that God would bring them into possession of, the, of Canaan, and they clamored for the blessing of the wilderness. Okay, so here's a really fascinating point. Sometimes what looks like a bummer is actually a blessing. Okay, I want to say that again. Sometimes what looks like a bummer, which looks like, oh no, a downer, something that you wished hadn't happened, maybe even a curse, maybe even a trial, a trouble, if we'll just look at it through the eyes of faith and we'll think about where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going, we will discern not a bummer, but a blessing. And that's exactly what could have happened here. They're on the verge, they're on the threshold of the promised land, And they're actually thinking, oh no, the water's run out. We're never going to make it into the promised land. We should go back into the wilderness where the water will be flowing. But she says that God turned the faucet off precisely to alert them that that chapter is closing and a new chapter is opening. Okay, let me give you a good illustration. I mean, you probably have your own illustrations, right? I see Megan here saying, this is true. It's hard, but true. Agree. Totally agree, Megan. And I'll give you uh, an experience from my own life. So I had a girlfriend, a very, very serious girlfriend of almost three years, and uh, I was young. I was 21, 22, and 23, right? So not like, it wasn't like puppy love. I mean, I really did love this uh, woman, and we lived together, and I wasn't yet a follower of Jesus, and I thought, I mean, she was perfect for me, I thought. And uh, she was into what I was into. She was into music and she was into rock climbing and she was amazing and I liked her. And I still hope she's doing really well. Well, anyway, long story short, one day I came home to our house and she's on the couch and she's crying. And she says, I say, I say, what's wrong? And she says, um, she says, David, I'm breaking up with you. Well, I mean, this hit me as out of left field as you could have, I mean, I was like, what? I thought she was joking. I thought she was delusional. I said, well, what are you talking about? I mean, our relationship was fantastic. It was great. And uh, yeah, again, we were young, but it was a really good relationship by the standards of sort of our peers and by the standards of the world. It was a great relationship. I certainly loved her. She loved me. And yet here she is crying on the couch and saying she has to break up with me. Anyway, I peppered her with the questions, but she was resolute. And uh, when I would ask her, why are you, I don't know, I just thought this is something I have to do, I don't know. I was devastated. I mean, I went into, I've really never been depressed in my whole life, which is kind of interesting because depression kind of runs in my family, but I've never been depressed, but I was depressed. And I moved out of the house and I got my own apartment and it was in Laramie, Wyoming, and it was in the middle of winter and it was freezing cold. And I was absolutely depressed. If you've ever heard me tell my story, you've heard this part, discouraged, depressed, aimless. I mean, I was at the university because she was there, and what do I do now? Anyway, it was in this depression, it was in this what looked like a bummer that I walked across my room one day to take a book off of my shelf that had been given to me almost a year before titled The Great Controversy. 
It wasn't this particular one. This one didn't exist yet, but it was the great controversy. And I was like, I'm going to read this book. What, what do I have to lose, right? The religious impulse was really strong in my life at that time because I was looking for meaning. I was looking for purpose. I was trying to make sense out of heartbreak. I really loved this girl and I thought she loved me. And here I, my hopes were just dashed. It was terrible. And uh, long story short, I pick up The Great Controversy. I start reading it. Like two weeks later, I've read this book. My whole life is turned around. Like, like I literally am reading the book. And as I'm reading it, even though I'm not even yet a Christian, I wouldn't have called myself a Christian. If you had come and found me when I was reading through that book over that two or three week period, and you would have said, are you a Christian? I would have said, no, not really, but I'm reading this really interesting Christian book on church history. But even as I was reading it, I was like, this book's going to change my life. This book is changing my life. This is the new direction of my life. I just knew it. It's like I was watching my own life in slow motion. And I knew what was going to happen even before it was going to happen. I knew that I was going to become a follower of Jesus. I knew that I was going to turn my life over to him. I knew somehow that I was going to get baptized, but I was still going through it in slow motion, even though I knew where it was going. It's incredible. One of the most almost out-of-body amazing experiences I ever had in my whole life, and here's the point. I went from the lowest valley of my life up to that point to the mountaintop in three months, maybe six months, if you want to go from, from when she broke up with me to when I was baptized. You're talking about a period of six months. What looked like a bummer turned out to be the biggest blessing, right? And so God sometimes withdraws something that we've come to expect, something that we've become reliant upon, and all of a sudden, this is an opportunity for us either to murmur and complain and say, oh, I want to go back to the way it was, or to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe I'm on the verge of a new chapter. Maybe I'm about ready to enter the next phase. Maybe I'm on the threshold of the promised land. Maybe I'm leaving behind the, the, the rock that flows with water and I'm entering the land that flows with milk and honey. Maybe I'm turning in something good for something better, right? Something great for something greater. And Jesus was leading them. Remember, the wilderness journey wasn't plan A anyway. They were supposed to have that 11-day journey from Sinai to to the promised land, I mean, to the borders, the the uh, borders there at Kadesh was an 11-day journey. So all of this is like plan, you know, Z or double Z. So I just thought that was a really great point that everything that looks like a bummer might not be a bummer. It might be the doorway to a blessing. And I could bore you with some other stories in my own life about that, but just be open, be attentive. Maybe God is doing something bigger and larger in your life and this difficult period, this trial, this illness, this unforeseen bummer, tragedy, difficulty, trial is actually the gateway to something bigger and better. God works that way. God works that way. I mean, the cross is the great example, right? Who for the, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, right? Or despised the shame, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, Speaking of the cross event, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, I mean, it was the darkest hour that gives, that gives way to the brightest and best day in the whole of universal history, the resurrection of Jesus, right? So what looks like a bummer can be a blessing if we see through the eyes of faith, and she makes that point there. Um, so I'm just going to kind of, you know, keep moving along here because there's a lot that I could say. 
God then says to Moses, go to the rock and speak to the rock. And then she makes the point here repeatedly that, that now even the, the patience of Moses gives way because of the unbelief, because of the murmuring. I mean, they ask all these questions there. Why have you brought us brought up the assembly of the Lord to this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? This isn't a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, all the things they've been imagining in their minds. There isn't even any water to drink. And so Moses and Aaron, as they did in the rebellion of Korah, they fall down on their faces before the Lord. God appears to them and says, here's the deal. Go to the rock, speak to the rock, and waters will flow out. But Moses is past his limit. She says this several times. She says, even the patience of Moses gave away. Um, uh, she says that, uh, let's see here, he took it upon himself. To, anyway, I'm getting to the point here, but she makes the point a couple times where, um, here it is. This is on the next page. Moses and Aaron had made no effort to stem the current of popular feeling. And then again, a little bit later, wearied with the continual murmuring and rebellion of the people, Moses had lost sight of his almighty helper. So you get the real strong sense here that Moses is just exhausted. I mean, he's an old man at this point. He's approaching 120 years old. The, the third of his three 40s, right? The 40 years in Egypt, the 40 years in Midian, then now the 40 years in the wilderness. He always had that light at the end of the tunnel that he was going to get into the promised land. So he's an old man. And he's just over it. He's frustrated. He's annoyed. He's angry. He can't believe that at just the moment when God has turned the faucet off, so to speak, to prepare them to enter the land flowing with milk and honey, something bigger and better, that, that here again, they're complaining, and oh, why did you bring us here? And our animals are going to die. And there's no figs and there's no pomegranates. And he's just beside himself. And so he loses his patience. And she makes that point here repeatedly. She talks about his patience, his impatience. Um, page 506, 418 of the original paragraph begins, by his rash act, Moses took away the force of the lesson that God had purposed to teach. The rock being a symbol of Christ had been once struck as Christ had been once offered. The second time it was needful only to speak to the rock as we have, here it is again, only to ask for the blessings in the name of Jesus. And then she makes this incredible point. By the second striking of the rock, the rock, the significance of this beautiful figure of Christ was destroyed. Whoa. Strong language. But she's not wrong, actually. If the rock is Christ, and if the, the smitten rock flows with life-giving water, striking the rock repeatedly cannot in any way symbolize Jesus because Jesus suffered once for sins. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, right? She's already quoted that back um, sort of like in the third paragraph. And so immediately she says he was overcome at last. Um, she does use several interesting phrases here, and maybe I should just drop these phrases on you. She says... Um, he took it upon himself. Here's the phrases I wrote it down. He took it upon himself, looking to themselves, take to themselves the glory. And, and this was the mistake. And, and if you go back and actually read, let me just read it to you here. Um, 
So this is Numbers chapter 20, verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand, struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. So the, the failure of Moses here is really a fourfold failure. He makes four mistakes. Okay, first of all, he says, you rebels, right? And so he, he takes on the posture of impatience and frustration and annoyance, number one. Number two, he uses the plural, must we fetch water from this rock for you? We? Well, Moses has no capacity or ability to bring water supernaturally out of a rock. And so here he is, again, um, taking, uh, taking to himself the glory, looking to himself and taking it upon himself, right? Like, he doesn't actually believe this, and I'm going to get to that in just a second, but in his impatience, he says something rash, and it sounds like it's him that's doing it, like him and Yahweh are doing this thing rather than Yahweh's doing it, and he, again, is merely the spokesperson. So that's number two. He refers to them as rebels, number one. There's his annoyance and impatience. Number two, he says, must we? Number three, he strikes the rock. He had not been told to strike the rock. He'd been told to speak to the rock because the rock had already been struck much earlier. And then, fourthly, he strikes it twice, right? And so it's a series of absent-minded mistakes. And immediately, immediately, the censure comes, the rebuke comes from God. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, because you did not believe me and and hallow me, keep me holy, different, distinct in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you will not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was hallowed among them. She makes the point that this was deeply humiliating to Moses. She says that exactly. Bitter and deeply humiliating. And, uh, this is a really interesting point, and I want you to get this point. Okay, check this out. Hey, Christian, good to see you, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> Christian says, we sounds like one too many people. Exactly, exactly. And remember, he's standing there with Aaron. So it's kind of like, must Aaron and I, yeah, yeah, and Yahweh too, but, but must Aaron and I, and the contempt and the impatience with which he spoke made it look like this was something Moses was doing. Now, again, if you had interviewed Moses, put a microphone in his face and asked him, hey, are you doing this or is Yahweh doing this? He would have given you the right answers. He knew it wasn't him. But in his impatience, and watch this, this is one of the best points in the whole chapter. Um, page 507, 419 of the original paragraph begins, God did not on this occasion pronounce judgments. Jump down to the last sentence. It was by looking to themselves, okay, I've already mentioned that several times, appealing to their own sympathies, that they unconsciously fell into sin. Bam! Mark that and mark it well. They unconsciously fell into sin and failed to set before the people their great guilt before God. That's a fascinating observation. It was not rebellion because it wasn't willful, it wasn't premeditated, and it wasn't intentional. She says he unconsciously, in his impatience, in his fatigue, in his frustration, in his old age, he unconsciously fell into sin. Now, jump down to the next paragraph. Next paragraph, right down toward the end of that paragraph, about the middle, uh, actually just uh, past the middle, but they were not chargeable 
with willful or deliberate sin. Aha, this is an unconscious sin. This is a mistake. It's not a rebellion. She says it's not willful and it's not deliberate. And notice she goes on to say, they had been overcome by a sudden temptation and their contrition was immediate, immediate and heartfelt. Okay, friends, 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 friends. I hear people all the time. In fact, I got this question just today. What if I sin? What if I fail? What if I fall? What if I make a mistake? How do I know that God can save me? Okay, to state, first of all, to state the obvious, God is in the business of saving sinners and saving lots of sinners who commit lots of sin. So let's just put that on the table as the obvious one. But, but here, it's really cool and extremely encouraging that she makes a distinction between what she calls willful and deliberate sin and unconsciously falling into sin because of a sudden temptation. Okay, now to be clear, this doesn't excuse sin, but it does place this in a different category to rebellion. This is really encouraging to me because in moments of weakness, I have said things I wish I hadn't said, thought things I wish I hadn't thought, felt things I wish I hadn't felt. And the way that I measure whether or not that's really what's going on in my heart, like, is that me? It's kind of the Romans 7 thing, you know, oh, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul wants to be delivered. He's stuck in a body that continues to go contrary to the desires of his heart and his mind. And one of the great litmus test, one of the great barometers of where your heart is at is, how do you respond when you come to your senses and realize, oh, that was stupid, that was unwise, I, un I got caught there by a sudden temptation, I, I unconsciously yielded to temptation, it wasn't willful or deliberate, it was still a sin and I'm still chargeable. And the way you can know your own heart is to gauge how do you feel the moment you become aware of your stupid mistake? And if you draw back, you're like, oh man, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I did that. That's a good sign. That's a great sign. Notice what she says here. She says, um, she says they had been overcome by a sudden temptation and their contrition was immediate and heartfelt. Here's a really good thing to do. You've sinned. You failed, you've made a mistake, you've made a mess. Go read Psalm 51, right? Go read Psalm 51, David's psalm of contrition after uh, the murder of Uriah and the rape of Bathsheba. Go read Psalm 51. And if you find yourself in deep resonance with Psalm 51, then you're okay. It's not okay that you sinned, but you, that's a gauge of your heart. It's a measure of your heart. If you read Psalm 51 and you're like, yes, Lord, this is me, please, that's your litmus test. That's your barometer. And that's what happened here. Now, God can also forgive willful, deliberate, rebellious sin. Of course he can. But the condition of a heart, and I want you to follow me carefully on this, the condition of a heart that would commit, consistently commit, habitually commit, willful, rebellious, defiant sin is a heart that's in precarious danger of committing the unpardonable sin and cutting off the channel, not God cutting off the channel, but the heart cutting off the channel as Pharaoh did, right, to stay with our Exodus theme here, so that you can't even receive the blessings of God. This is the difference. And here's a really simple sort of trivial explanation. So imagine the speed limit is 70 miles an hour. 
Okay, so the speed limit says 70. If you're going 76, you're breaking the law and you can be charged with a crime. So the police officer pulls you over, says, hey, do you know how fast you were going? You say, I'm not quite sure. He says you were going 76. You likely will get a ticket and you deserve a ticket, right? But 72, 73, 74, 75, 76, absent-minded. You might even say at times 80 can be absent-minded. That's pushing the limits. But you know, you're in a fast car, you're going downhill, the music's loud and you're having a great time. The windows roll down. There's not a lot of cars on the road. You're feeling great. You go 80 miles an hour, you get pulled over and you think, oh man, I guess I was going faster than I thought. Okay. If the speed limit is 70 and you're going 76 or 75, somewhere in that range, you unconsciously fell into sin, right? This is obviously a trivial illustration, but go with me on it. I'm not suggesting that speeding is a sin, but you're driving 120 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour speed limit zone. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. And the police officer is going to treat you much differently going 100 or 110 or 120 or even 90 than if you're going 75, 76, 74. Do you see the difference? All of it is law-breaking. All of it is disobedience. All of it is transgression. But some of it is rebellious and defiant and willful. It's, it's what the Bible calls high-handed sin. It's flouting the rules. Oh, this says 70, I'll go 100. This says 70, I'll go 110. This says 70, I'll go 120. And the kind of heart, again, it's a trivial illustration, but follow me. The kind of heart that would sin in a way that's analogous to going 120 miles an hour when you know the speed limit is 70 is a heart that is dangerously, precariously close to not being able to even reason through things like freedom and law and responsibility and duty and love, right? But going 75, 76, you get pulled over and say, oh, that's what happened here. Right now, what we discovered yesterday in our In the Wilderness chapter with the gentleman who pitched his tent purposefully, provocatively, where he wasn't supposed to, and then blasphemed the name of God, that's going 120. And then the man that went out defiantly and picked up sticks just to spite Yahweh, that's going 120. That's rebellion, that's defiance, and that is a different kind of thing, right? And so feel that, feel that not all sin is the same. Now, all sin is bad, and no sin is excusable. In fact, that's where she lands the whole chapter, that no sin is excusable. There's never the necessity of sin, but we have to make a distinction between what she calls unconsciously falling into sin and being willful and deliberate versus being overcome by a sudden, unexpected, unforeseen temptation. You make a mistake, you say something, you think something, you do something, you think, ah, what have I done? And in immediate humility, maybe not immediate, but you know, in short order, you humble yourself before God, you say, what have I done? I, I'm so sorry. You read Psalm 51, if that's the condition of your heart, that's your barometer. That's your barometer, and that's what happened here. Okay, that's what happened here, and um, I think it was really important to sort of describe the difference there between transgression and iniquity, between sin and high-handed sin, right? The Bible speaks about a sin that leads to death, and that's the rebellious sin. That, I mean, all sin, of course, leads to death. All unrepented of sin leads to death, but high-handed, rebellious, defiant sin positions the heart in such a way that the heart will become increasingly progressively hardened 
such that you will no longer even perceive sin as sin. Uh, to, to go back to our trivial illustration of the speed limit, if you're accustomed to going 100, 110, 120, and all of the efforts of law enforcement and of loss of license is doing nothing to move your heart, it's really hard to imagine that you could suddenly go down to going 76 in a 70 and then have this like super sensitive conscience like, whoa, whoa, I, I'm going six miles an hour over the speed limit. No, you've kind of hardened your heart. 76 doesn't even feel like a sin, right? If you're, if you're consistently going 110, 120 in a 70, 76 feels like you're almost obeying. And I tell you, sin is tricky like that. When you go out and you sow your wild oats and you sin in all kinds of terrible ways and, and really rebellious and high-handed ways, then when you come back to something closer to obedience, even if it's disobedience, you can trick yourself and say, well, I'm, I'm better than I was. I'm not as far down the path as I used to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. But God's standard is not get as close to the mark as possible. God's standard is the law. God's standard is what the text says. God's standard is obedience. Now, again, there is abundant and, and ongoing grace and mercy and forgiveness. But the question is, have you incapacitated yourself to understand your need for forgiveness? Have, have you so hardened your heart that you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not even obeying, but I've kind of tricked myself into thinking that I am because I'm not as bad as I used to be. Friends, God's standard is what God's standard is. And you can't slip and slide around it. And we've already seen many instances of that, whether it's Nadab and Abihu or Korah, Dathan and Abiram, or Moses here. And she makes the point that God holds Moses as the leader to account precisely because to be unfair or to express partiality or favoritism in the situation would actually be to increase evil and to create a circumstance in which people we're like, okay, yeah, so we see there's, there's favorites now. But when Moses was not allowed to go in, when Moses, for this, by comparison, minuscule sin, but it wasn't a minuscule sin because he knew better. He had, she says he was the, the, the let's see if I've got it here. He had honored Moses above every other man upon the earth. So Moses knew better. Moses knew better. And because Moses knew better, his small sin was actually a grave sin. And uh, there's a great punchline here that I'm not going to go into because we're going to get there in just a, a couple chapters um, with the death of Moses, right? Tomorrow's the journey around Edom, then the conquest of Bashan, then Balaam. Where are we at here? And then apostasy at the Jordan. Man, how far is it? Still a little ways, I guess. The law repeated. And then finally, the death of Moses. So we've still got a few chapters to go. And there's a great punchline there. All right, um... Uh, I've said a lot here. Let me just read a couple things and then we'll do our rubric. So page 508, 420 of the original. I want to read this paragraph. It's too good. Begins on every occasion. On every occasion of difficulty or trial, the Israelites have been ready to charge Moses with having led them from Egypt as though God had no agency in the matter. Throughout their journeyings, as they had complained of the difficulties in the way and murmured against their leaders, Moses had told them, quote, your murmurings are against God. It is not I, but God who has wrought in your deliverance. But his hasty words before the rock, shall we bring water, were a virtual admission of their charge and would thus confirm in them, confirm them in their unbelief and justify their murmurings. Whoa, 
This is very well communicated. The Lord would remove this impression forever from their minds by forbidding Moses to enter the promised land. Yikes. Here was unmistakable evidence that their leader was not Moses, but the mighty capital A angel, the angel of the covenant, Jesus himself, of whom the Lord had said, Behold, I will send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice, for my name is in him, Exodus 23, 20 and 21. That's it. That's the punchline. By comparison, like if you were going to get out the scale and weigh the sins of the Israelites and you were going to weigh the sin of Moses, well, it would look like the sin of Moses is considerably lighter and less significant than the sin of the Israelites. But he had access. He knew more. He'd been with God on the mountain. And for God to just wash over or or to, to... sweep this sin under the rug would have been to have created the impression of partiality and to have, she says, justified their murmurings. Okay, one more paragraph I want to read. Um, Just, in fact, two paragraphs later. The history of Israel. The history of Israel was to be placed on record for the instruction and warning of coming generations. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Men of all future time must see the God of heaven as an impartial ruler in no case justifying sin, right? Whether it's 120, 100, 110, or 76. But few realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Men flatter themselves, man, she likes that phrase, that God is too good to punish the transgressor, but in the light of Bible history, it is evident, we could use a synonym here, it is obvious that God's goodness and his love engage him to deal with, and I loved this, sin as an evil fatal to the peace and happiness of the universe. Underline that. Sin as an evil fatal to the peace and happiness of the universe. And she says, but few recognize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Um, then the last, uh, the last two paragraphs there, she's basically giving an exposition here of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. She says, the strongest temptation cannot excuse sin. However great the pressure brought to bear on the soul, transgression is our own act. Ooh, ooh. Tell it like it is, Sister White. Just give it to us straight. Give us, give us the shot. Give us the medicine. It is not in the power of earth or hell to compel anyone to do evil. Whoa. Satan attacks us at our weak points, but we need not be overcome, however severe or unexpected, right? Like the case with Moses, it was an unexpected temptation. However severe or unexpected the assault, God has provided help for us and in his strength we may conquer. Whoo, some strong medicine, but friends, that's what you want in a doctor, right? What you want in a doctor is somebody who tells you the truth about your condition and doesn't allow doesn't allow us to doesn't allow the patient to tell themselves lies. Right? Like the temptation is to tell ourselves lies and one of the ways that we do that is by comparing ourselves to others. We say, well, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not like her. <laughs> I mean, look at where they're at. Look at where I'm at. That's kind of what Moses did. When Moses says, hey, you rebels, 
must we, he's making a a distinction. He's making a difference, right? You are all rebels. You, you are murmuring. You are not discerning that this apparent bummer is actually a blessing. And Moses makes the distinction. And then God comes along and says, yeah, there is a distinction, but it's not between you and Israel. It's between all of you and me. I alone am holy. I alone am qualified to evaluate who's a rebel and who isn't a rebel. That's that's my domain, not yours. This is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever says to his brother, you fool, or whoever says raka, in the actual meaning of that phrase raka is not quite known for certain, but the idea is it's a dismissive tone of judgmentalism and of self-righteousness. You rebel, you raka, you fool. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's basically what Moses does here. He he makes a distinction between himself and other common sinners, where the real distinction is between all of us sinners and God. Whoo! Okay, that was pretty much nonstop there. Let me see if there's anything in my notes here that I was going to say that I forgot. Um, I wrote this down. Sin takes us in circles, but God's path is straight. God's blessings can sometimes look like bummers if we don't see them through the eye of faith. Oh, here's one. Oh, here's one. Here's one. Right after Moses strikes the rock twice, the water still comes out. The water still comes out. God still does the thing that he's going to do in spite of Moses' failure, in spite of Moses' sin, in spite of Moses' inattentiveness to the situation. And here's what I wrote. God's blessing on his people is not proof that the leaders or the ministers have done right or that their heart is in the right place. And oh, I tell you, this is a lesson for ministers and preachers and teachers and elders and those in leadership. Okay, so you did something and God blessed it. You did something and a great thing happened. That is in no way an endorsement of you or of your state of mind. You could actually be, and I mean, I don't want to say names here or anything, but Unfortunately, there's a pretty long list of spirit-filled, spirit-filled, powerful, eloquent, tell-the-truth gospel preachers who are adulterers, who are philanderers, who are living a life that is not in any way, shape, or form in harmony with Scripture, and they can trick themselves into saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, God must be shining upon me in some sense because, look, even though, you know, I'm over here and I'm not exactly, you know, but I am preaching powerful sermons and people are coming to faith and that's my proof. That's my evidence. Oh, contraire, mon frere. We cannot hang our hat on the mercy of God if God can speak through a donkey, right? If God can speak through a fish, if God can speak through a rooster, if God could speak through rocks. Remember, he says, if these should be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. That means God can speak through an unfaithful preacher. God can speak through an adulterer. God can speak through a thief. But that is in no way an endorsement of the specific heart status or circumstance of that preacher. Don't think for a minute, and this is an easy thing to do as a gospel preacher myself, 
you can sort of play the old, the one hand washes the other. That's not how it works. God still did the thing for Moses and for the children of Israel that he was planning to do. But that was in spite of Moses' failure, not because of it. And Moses was still punished. So I'll say it again. God's blessing on his people is not proof that the leader or the administrator or the minister or the preacher or the pastor, that their heart is in the right place. Um, okay. I think that's everything I wanted to say. Let's do the rubric. Let's do the rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What was the point of this chapter? I put to tell the story of great patience and momentary impulsive impatience, right? To contrast, a lifelong, I mean, Moses, maybe not the first 40 years, but the latter 80 years of Moses' life, if you were going to pick a single word to describe the latter two-thirds of Moses' life, patience might be the word. It would certainly be in the top five or the top three. It would be in the running. And so you have this whole lifelong patience and, and long-suffering and tolerance, and then right at the end, impatience. And I also put to lift up Jesus Christ, the rock and the water, as our only hope. Okay, the person. God is fair and impartial. He does not play favorites, right? Um, from Jesus Christ, the... can't even read my own word here. Oh, the stream of salvation flows out for a lost race. So God is impartial. He did not show favoritism to Moses. But there is a really, there's a really great punchline to the death of Moses, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Or to the, the non-entrance of Moses into the promised land. And many of you know it, but it's still going to be great when we get there. Okay, uh, the prayer. How do we pray this chapter? God, help me to be one of the few that realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin, right? Because she says there are a few that recognize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Well, if there's a few, can I be one of those few? God, can I, can I be one of them? I want to be one of the people that, that certainly in the world generally, and even in the lives of others, but especially in my own life, I am cognizant of and aware of the sinfulness of sin, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, whether it's 71, 72, 73, 74, or 120, I don't want to make excuses for sin. I want to be God's man. I want to be God's, I want to be the husband that I can be to Violetta. I want to be the father that I can be to my two boys. I want to be the minister that I can be. I want to be the speaker for light bearers that I can be. I don't want to be excusing sin because I have biblical knowledge or because I have a platform and because, you know, uh, to convince myself in the deceitfulness of my own heart that one hand washes the other. No, Father, Show me the exceeding sinfulness of sin in my heart, in, reveal it to me in your word, and help me to take it seriously. And help it to shape the way that I view myself, the way that I view Jesus in his unique and wonderful righteousness, his infinite righteousness. All right, and the practice. Here it is. Don't tell myself lies about the strength of temptation as an excuse for sin. I want to rely on God and his grace moment by moment. And she actually says that moment by moment in the chapter. So we mentioned a few lessons ago, don't, don't believe your own hype. Well, how about don't believe your own lies? The easiest person to fool is yourself. The easiest person to deceive is yourself. 
And I don't want to tell myself lies about, oh, well, it was a strong temptation. Oh, I was tired. Oh, I was a little angry. Oh, the person really overstepped their bounds. And so I, now I don't want to make excuses for sin, right? Insofar as it's possible, I want to live the life that Christ has created me to live. And if sin is not a necessity, then why should I succumb to it? That's a really good practical question. If sin is not a necessity, then why should I succumb? Think of it this way. Have you ever been tempted to sin, to do something that you knew you shouldn't have done, and then you didn't do it? You overcame it? Yeah, me too. We all have. We all have. Okay, well, just extrapolate. If you did it in that one instance, then why couldn't you do it in the next? Right? We sometimes talk about sin like it's a necessity. And it is certainly true that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and even our righteousness are like filthy rags. But when we tell ourselves the same story over and over again, we actually allow ourselves to feel better about sin than we should. We kind of convince ourselves, well, you know, it was in that circumstance, in that situation, on that day, it was kind of inevitable. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that by the grace of God, I mean, if the devil can tempt us to sin, God can't empower us to stay away from it. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. If Satan can tempt me to sin, and my own deceitful heart can tempt me to sin, if it has sufficient power to do that, am I suggesting that God doesn't have power to keep me from it? That doesn't make any sense at all, because there have been many, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of instances in my life where I've been tempted to do something, and I said no. Well, if I, if I can do it 50% of the time, why not 60? And if I can do it 60% of the time, why not 70% of the time? And if I can do it, set, you, you see where this is going, right? Like at the end of the day, we would never get access to heaven by our sinlessness, by our faithfulness. We're all sinners in need of a savior. But I don't think that resting on the righteousness of Christ should in any way in our mind excuse deliberate sin. I mean, I can tell you right now, real talk, I have, uh, I have, you know, committed sins that I knew I shouldn't have done. I just was like, oh yeah, I, I guess I guess it'll be all right. Well, that was stupid and unwise. Okay, a couple more here. The promise. The promise for me was John 7, 37 to 39, the passage that we quoted there on the Feast of Tabernacles. Out of their bellies shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus flows into us that he may flow out of us. And that's the same thing he said to the woman at the well, which is the other promise of mine. John 4, 14, that uh, whoever shall drink of this water shall thirst again, but whoever whoever shall drink of the water that I will give him will never thirst again, but the water that will be in him will, will spring up, will be like a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And then my rock verse. Are you ready for this? My rock verse, write it down. Deuteronomy 32, 31. Easy to remember. Deuteronomy 32, 31. It's a really cool verse. It says, For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies acknowledge. That's a cool verse. Their rock, lowercase r, is not like our rock, uppercase our, even our enemies will admit our rock is better. That's cool. 
That's cool because the Israelites' rock was Christ, and out of that rock flowed water. Whenever it was needed, water flowed out of that rock. And so Moses says, hey, look, even our enemies will admit our rock is better than theirs. And friends, this has got that John 6 feel, right, where Jesus says to the disciples that are all wandering away there, he says, will you also go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, you're the best show in town. And even if we're confused, and even if we don't understand, we're not going to leave you. That's what Moses is saying here. Even our enemies, even the Ishmaelites, even the Canaanites, even the Edomites, all of our enemies admit that our rock is better than their rock. Ha <laughs> ha! That's a great verse. I'll read it again. For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies admit. All right, so what was your word for today? Let's see what you've got. What is your word? Let's see what Jen's got here. Our rock rocks, and everyone knows it. Oh, that's good. Our rock rocks. Okay, Carl says his word is water. Uh, Hannah says water. Yep, that's great. Gabby Abby giving the double hands up. Ask. Oh, very good, Sable. That's good. I like it. Yeah, that was a major, major theme. Um, rock. Jen says thirst. Ask. Ask is a great word. Abundance. Solid. Rock. A lot of rock. A lot of water. Ooh, Megan, I like where you went there. Smitten. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You went the Isaiah 53 route. Vigilance, thirsting, fountain. Oh, hallow, Ashley. I like that. If you will, hallow my name. Source, refreshing, overcome, self-exaltation. Ooh, impartial. Very good. Envy glass. That's great. Hardened, speak, speak. Ooh, self. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. I can see the reasoning behind all the words. Thirst. Water slash rock, very good. Um, rely slash wearied, yeah, disheartened, impatience, surrender, refused, drink, yeah, spring, says Deb. Watch, Joanne says yield, judgment. Yeah, my word was ask ask, if the rock points to Jesus, and the water points to Jesus, and the rock had already been smitten, such that, and she makes this point twice, we need only ask. We need only ask. What are we asking for? We're asking for the historical event of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to be applied to our case. We don't have to work. We don't have to to set ourselves over and above other sinners in some sort of imagined superiority? No, we ask. We ask, we ask, we ask. And my word was, was ask. And this, of course, feels um, very much like ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened. I just love the idea that, that the water was so available and it was so abundant that you didn't have to do anything special. You had to ask. And friends, if we ask God to do a work in our lives that only he can do, 
the blood of Jesus to be applied to our case, right? The perfect life, right? The, 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 the sinless life and the substitutionary death. We ask, only ask. He will answer. The answer is yes. If you're wondering, well, what about in my case? I'm a really big sinner. I'm not. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Ask. The answer is yes. Say, say, Jesus, will you forgive me? The answer is yes. Jesus, will you allow your sinless life to stand in the place of my life? The answer is yes. Jesus, will your substitutionary death be the death that I deserved? May it stand in my place? The answer is yes. But Jesus, is there enough water for me? The answer is yes. Jesus, is the rock big enough for me to hide in? The answer is yes. Our rock is not like their rock. Even our enemies acknowledge this. The answer is yes. If you ask, the answer is yes. The answer will only not be yes if we don't ask. Because we need only ask. 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 There is water sufficient for you. There is mercy sufficient for you. There is grace sufficient for you. The rock is big enough for you. Come on now. Even our enemies know it. Even our enemies know it. All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a great session this was. What a great lesson. Father, help us to learn the lessons here. And there are many of them. Father, help us to, to read these chapters and to enter into them, not just to read them as historical narratives or out of interest or curiosity. All of that's good. We do want to be learning. We do want there to be an educational element here. But Father, we are praying that your spirit would make individual, tailor-made, application to our situation and circumstance. We are asking. We are asking. We are asking. And we know that you are answering. And the answer is yes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.